Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Freeman Means Business Wonder Women in Business podcast. Everyone has a story, and our Wonder Women in Business podcasts give a voice to the women whose story is meaningful, moving, and compelling. We share these stories with you so that in their shining, they give you permission to shine as well. Today's guest is the remarkable and probably needs no introduction, Pat Gillette. First of all, let me say what an honor it is for me to have you here today, Pat. Thank you, Susan. Thank you for all you're doing to advance women in business and in the legal profession. Really, We all really appreciate what you're doing. That is very kind of you to say. Very kind. Of, I know we share a special place in our hearts for lifting women in business. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about yourself um, and your background, or, or tell me a little bit about what you want people to know about Pat Gillette. So I was a lawyer for, or I guess I still am a lawyer, uh, for 40 years I practiced law, um, primarily in big law, meaning I was in large law firms, uh, and primarily in leadership positions because I had a large group of business. Uh, I was a litigator and I did employment law, and I used my position as an employment lawyer to uh, help companies advance issues relating to women and people of color. And one might ask how you do that, and I think later on when we talk a little bit further, I'll explain how that works. But I had a wonderful career as a lawyer. I'm also a mother of two wonderful sons. Uh, one is a PhD in math. We claim that he must be adopted because he has two lawyers for parents, and we know lawyers can't do math. Um, and he's a professor at the University of Arizona. Um, my other son is in public policy, uh, went to the Kennedy School. Um, and does really interesting social impact um, policy matters and, and works to improve the world. So I'm very proud of my two boys, and I have a husband of 45 years um, who is or was one of the top appellate lawyers in the country. So um, wow. I'm someone who's been really blessed with a wonderful career, a wonderful family, and uh, the ability to have a voice in both my profession as well as my community here in California where I was an elected official for four years. So I'm, I'm a happy person now. I currently speak nationally on issues related to women uh, and women in business, women in the legal profession, how to get power, how to retain power, how to advance within the industry, how to get business, those kinds of issues which I'm really passionate about and I feel like it's my turn now to give back for all the wonderful things that I've benefited from over my long career. Wow. So, Pat, I'll say a few things. That was a, um, a lot of great information, and I have to say a lot of things I did not already know, which is shocking, because I thought I knew you so well. You must be <laughs> one proud mama. That's amazing. So, I'm a boy mom, too, and I think it's a different skill set and a different um, you know, way of communicating with your child when, you know, you have a boy and not a girl or vice versa. You know, they're just different. And I yes, think true. <laughs> wonderful. It's just so interesting that one is in math and one is in public service. Um, that's fascinating. The Kennedy School is amazing. Very, you know, world renowned Kennedy School. That's amazing. So let me ask you, I did not know that you'd been an elected official. Yes, I always wanted to be a politician. It's actually I wanted to law in the first place. I thought that I wanted to run for office. Um, and so I got sort of sidetracked being a very active full-time lawyer uh, my entire career. And at one point I went to a person to help me sort of sort out what my next adventure should be. And she asked me, what do you want to do? And I said, 
oh, I don't know. And then she asked me again, and I said, I don't know. And the third time I said, <laughs> well, I want to be a politician. So she said, okay, let's figure out how to do that. So, so I ended up running for um, what is the equivalent of our town council here in Kensington, California. We have nice. a community of, of 5,000 people. Uh, so we all know each other. And it was a very interesting experience. At one point, about two years in, I thought about running for Congress. And then the next two years came where I said, I'll never run for office again because it was eye-opening to see what it's like to be an elected official. I really enjoyed it, and I learned a lot, and all politics are local, and that was really driven home. So it was an interesting experience, but um, I'm glad I didn't make that my career. (laughs) Yeah, I'll say so. I have a long and strong and broad history in politics. Um, uh, Without making this podcast about me, I just think a funny little something that you need to know is that Years ago, when I met my husband, he had been an elected Republican at state level, at, you know, local level, and then had been chief of staff in U.S. Congress for, you know, at federal level. Wow. Yeah. So um, he was a Republican, and I had come from a long line of Democrats. My uncle had been lieutenant governor, speaker of the house, a judge, you know, all on the other side of the aisle. (laughs) And we, we were able to, first of all, we were really fun at parties. Um, but (laughs) second of all, we were able to discuss issues and and talk about how they impacted us personally in a meaningful and and with civil political discourse, as you might say, um, whereas I don't see that much today. So your decision not to run for Congress, I do not wonder why at all. I can, I can get Um, What a wonderful story though. And if only our country could find a way to have those kinds of discussions, we'd be in a much better place now. So maybe we change it person by person, you know. (laughs) I believe that's how change takes place is one mind at a time. Um, I always say that this notion of uh, changing corporate culture or these big sweeping changes that any one individual promises they can make, um, even at the the company level, that's a myth. So we do need to- yeah, with one mind at a time. Well, that's pretty awesome. And and I knew a lot about you, but that was something I did not know. All that being said, what would you consider your proudest professional accomplishment? So, you know, to answer that, I, I have to answer it in two ways. The first is certainly my career as a litigator, I had many victories um, at trial that I'm immensely proud of. Um, but I think what I'm more proud of in terms of my actual work life is the fact that I was able to work with a group of wonderful people who were partners and associates in my firm and to mentor them and to watch them go on to incredible careers, either within the firm or outside of the firm. And to me, that was what practicing law was all about. It was making your clients happy by winning your cases or getting the best result you could or they should change practices that were no longer productive or appropriate, and then to mentor and bring along people who are incredible um, individuals with the ability to to share their wisdom and their intellect and their strategy with other folks who they could then um, lead into making the right decisions for their company or organization. So. I worked with wonderful men and women over my career, um, all of whom I am so proud of in terms of what they've achieved in their careers. On a sort of slightly other professional level, I spent a lot of my time 
working on something called the Opt-In Project, which was a national initiative to address what I thought was the main problem with the legal industry, which was the structure of law firms. Um, and I was one of the first voices to come out and say, let's not talk about work-life balance because work-life balance is a symptom of a larger problem. And the larger problem is the structure of law firms, how we compensate people, how people progress, how we evaluate people of billable hour, how we work in silos instead of teams. And so we published a report in 2007 uh, that became one of the major catalysts for change in the legal industry. So in terms of that part of my career, that I'd say was one of my uh, most proud moments when we were able to roll out that report and I toured the country talking about changing the discussion from it's about women and work-life balance to it's about law firms and the structure. And that has become a subject of discussion and a subject of change in the industry. So I'm very proud of that. Well, I will say. And I guess there's, there's one more thing I have to mention. Go ahead. And that is yeah, Karen Ulrich Stacy ran the hackathon in 2016. And my team was the team that came up with the Mansfield rule. Um, and as you know, I'm sure, um, even if you aren't in the legal industry, this particular rule, just modeled after the Rooney rule, uh, requires that 30% of all candidates for leadership positions be women or people of color. And that has increased the pipeline, it's increased the visibility of women. 60 firms across the country have already adopted it, and many, many corporations have backed those firms by giving them special benefits for signing on to the Mansfield Rule and showing that they have results and increases in women and minorities in positions of leadership and power. So I'm very proud of my team. <laughs> Well, I just have to say I am blown away. So first of all, uh, you seem to be the gift that keeps on giving. Pat Gillette is the <laughs> gift that keeps on giving. Seriously, the fact that, I mean, obviously we would assume you take your clients uh, seriously and their success seriously, um, but your internal clients as well, like the future generations or others that worked with you, you made sure that they had best practices under their belt or that you were supportive of their careers and growing and protecting their own practices. That's, that's really wonderful. So as Adam Grant would say, you're a giver and givers always win in the end. Um, <laughs> the next thing well, is, I didn't know. I mean, I'm very familiar with the man's rule, obviously, but I didn't know that you were one of those folks that made this, um, really an industry changing thing that it is. And I look for that in law firms, even when, when I'm doing my events at certain law firms, I check out, you know, how many women, how many people of color, what is the power of, um, you know, or the, the impact of muted group theory in that firm, you know, do these people have a voice? Are they respected? Before I mm -hmm. even post my events there, you know, I want to know, um, it's sort of like, you know, shareholders who demand that the company does business with certain suppliers. Um, I want diverse <laughs> suppliers, you know. Exactly, exactly. I love well, it. Wow. The Mansfield was really born out of a concept that my public policy friend told me about, and it's something that people use in business, which is impact versus action. And what dawned on me as I thought about that concept is that law firms take a lot of actions, but they have no impact. And so they just keep taking the same actions over and over and over again, and there's no impact. And so the Mansfield rule is something 
you know, our team, Rosalie Chamberlain was my co-leader of the team, and we really pushed them to come up with something that would be impactful, um, that was easy to implement, and that, where we could see results in a few years. And Mansfield Rule is exactly that. So I'm so proud of what we accomplished, and I'm really impressed that Karen was able to take it to the next level and roll it out across the country. Oh, she's great. So, um, yeah. yeah, she's fantastic. Um, so you took a concept, you turned it into a reality that happens rarely, but, it mm -hmm. <laughs> but that reality actually caught on fire and, um, people, you know, it's one thing to, and women suffer this, you know, this, we, we do something terrific and we don't get known for it. We have to do something again and again and again and again, and prove ourselves over and over and over. But you were able to, with your team. Uh, really change the industry and lead by example for other industries, which I have to say, legal isn't known for that. We're not known, <laughs> you know. So that's the least. Pretty, yeah, pretty progressive there. Well, um, that's definitely three amazing, uh, proud professional accomplishments. Who has been your inspiration? You know, I would say. My impression has been twofold. The first is my mom. My mom was an amazing woman who came from a family that immigrated here from Lebanon. Um, and she had six siblings, all of whom went to college and were successful in their various careers. My mom was a teacher here and was one of the first California teachers of the year. She was a very gifted um, educator. And, you know, she always told us that you should always reach higher than you think you can and you will achieve what you are able to, and to never be discouraged. She was the ultimate optimist despite having a very difficult childhood and early um, adulthood with her first husband dying in chemical explosion. And yet, you know, she never had a wow. negative word to say or was never not optimistic. So she taught me resilience and she taught me optimism and she taught me to always stretch beyond what I thought was possible. Um, so that was the first person who really influenced me. She sounds then, like those are great traits to have in a teacher and, you know, perseverance and resilience. And that, that sounds like a perfect teacher profile to me. Um, but, you yeah. know, for you, she was your mom at the same time. So that's awesome. Exactly. Well, exactly. Well, <laughs> you know, and we thought, and the other person is a woman named Bobby Liebenberg, Roberta Liebenberg, your official name. And Bobby is a force of nature in the women's movement in the legal profession. Um, she's responsible for sponsoring me and giving me a platform to talk about the various ideas that I have and to help moving forward. Bobby is very much like my mom, the optimist that you can do anything. We can accomplish things together, a team player. Um, and she inspires me every day to this day. She's just an amazing, amazing woman. How nice. Well, I hope that she hears this podcast because what a great shout out you gave to her. Um, yeah, so I think that optimists change the world. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people say, well, you have to be pessimistic. No, you don't. You don't have to. Be <laughs> you can be an idealist, you know, but and you can be a realist. But a pessimist, I think that they may change the world, but not in the way we want them to. So I love exactly. that. <laughs> Surround yourself with idealists and optimists. That's really great. And you're a living example of optimism personified. So you've done so much. <laughs> you're a giver. Um, I love that about you. I think that's why we connected 
you know, I personally have a strongly held belief that women should lift each other up. Um, how would you advise, I know that you've lived this example all your life, but in, in one beat, bit of advice, what, what would you give to other women, how they can support one another in business, some small doable way, actionable item? Yeah, so first of all, I just want to give a shout out to you, Susan, and this is not pandering, this is real, <laughs> and that is that you really have had an impact since you landed uh, in this space a little while back. I know you've been doing this work for a long time, but you landed in such a big way and have already had an amazing impact on so many women. So, you know, there's people like you who are out there doing those, these kinds of things that affect a lot of people. Um, positively and, and really give people the optimism and the courage to go forward. In terms of the advice I would give, a, a small little piece of advice I would give to other women, is we have to stick together and we have to look to men to help us. Um, I believe that women need to be careful not to compete with each other. We need to be careful not to sabotage each other's careers, that we want to make space for everyone. Um, and so we have to play on each other's strengths and advance our sisters in whatever profession we're in. I believe men can be an important part of that, and I really want to see women embrace men as allies rather than excluding them from our conversations. So it, it, we've gone, the pendulum has swung way the other way where you know all about women and, and moving women forward, and I really believe that, obviously. But I don't want to exclude men from that conversation because I do believe there are many men out there who are more than happy to assist us in our fight for power and leadership in our organizations. And you know what? They're in power and leadership. So right. we're not going to get there without their help. So right. I would embrace them and use them as sponsors and mentors and people who can help us um, move forward in our careers. I always say that um, we are replacing one problem with another problem if we go the other extreme. We're no better than the way it is now if we decide, you know, to to leave men out of the conversation. So I agree that yeah. our allies. First of all, in the first part of your comments there, thank you. That means a lot to me. I am a feeler, and so I take those kinds of comments. <laughs> and, um, well, you it deserve it. want to go more and more and more. And to me, Pat, and my husband hates to hear me say this because he's not quite the feeler that I am, but to me, <laughs> the, message, the message means more than the money. So the fact that mm -hmm. we can have as many voices out there saying, not only should you be heard, let's raise awareness on how you can be heard, but here's some action steps or some solutions or, or actual strategies that you can put in place to be heard. And by incorporating a man's voice or the, we'll just say the, the, the voice of men collectively into the strategy, that's a winning strategy to eliminate exactly. that, shoot ourselves in the foot. So, well, I know that the more diversity you have, more diversity of thoughts you have, the better the decision process is. So, you know, I love having all women in a room talking about something because it's very confirming. But to bring men into those conversations and get their perspectives and their ideas about how to advance the ball can only help. Either it assures you that you're on the right track or it makes you rethink the track you're on and perhaps take a different tack. So I only see benefit from in, including men in the discussion. I agree. I'm married to one of those allies and he's just <laughs> incredibly supportive. Um, I, I couldn't be 
and I'm not afraid to say this and I'm not ashamed to say this and I couldn't be where I am today without him. So <laughs> I'm grateful for his help. Now you would probably still hear me and see me clawing and screaming to have a voice for other people, <laughs> but he has made um, this an effort that I'm, I've embarked on in the past many months. He's made this possible. He's been my partner in this, if you will. Um, not so silent sometimes either. Um, <laughs> let me ask you, it hasn't been all roses, I'm sure. What has been your biggest challenge or setback and how did you overcome it? So, you know, I have not really had a lot of challenges or setbacks in my career. Um, and I don't know if I'm lucky or smart, <laughs> but I there have been instances, like there was an instance toward the end of my career where I accused the judge of engaging in gender discrimination. And I think he was right. It was the first time I'd ever done it in my long career as a trial lawyer. And that was a difficult decision, but I felt I had to do it. Um, so that stands out as a moment in time where I was like, what am I going to do? And should I do this? You know, I had to take into consideration a whole bunch of different interests, my own interests, my client's interests, my firm interests, the public uh, response to me saying something like that about a judge. But it was true, you know, <laughs> so I decided to do it. And wow. I'm not sure it was the best thing to do, although I did get treated very well after that by the judge, as opposed to the way I've been treated before. I was the only woman on the trial team. Um, of and I was lead counsel and you know, I was being demeaned and you know uh, not considered to be uh, the lead counsel, which was really angering and interrupted and treated in a, a very very poor fashion. But you know, other than that, I would say I've had a pretty stress-free career. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I, as I said, I'm I feel very lucky for that. That doesn't make me um, not appreciate that many women have challenges right. that I didn't experience. Um, now, part of that was because I controlled a large book of business from about five years into my career till the end of my career, and business gives you power, so yeah. people weren't really going to cross me. <laughs> right. um, I wouldn't want to cross you, but I, that's why I respect <laughs> you. Um, you know, fear and respect are two different things, um, but I respect exactly. you greatly. I will say this, um, that example is fantastic in that you led by example for others. Um, I, I want to make a little book plug right here because you just personified the perfect example of being a troublemaker, sort of, you know, in that one. Mm -hmm. And I just bought this amazing book by um, Charlon Nemeth, N-E-M-E-T-H, called in Defense of Troublemakers, The Power of Dissent in Life and Business. And oh, I, wow. Yeah. So my history has been studying groupthink and major uh, communications theories. And I think in her book, she talks about be the Pat Gillette, you know, speak up. Um, there should be, even, even when the dissenter may not be right, there has to be room for dissent. I think about our favorite Supreme Court justice when I say that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there has to be room for that because, um, you know, oftentimes we will convince groups of people that blue is green when blue is not green. <laughs> so groupthink is very dangerous. And if you had not called out that judge, he may very well have continued his behavior with many, many other women 
uh, who appeared before him. So yeah. thank you. I think it's especially important now um, in this particular environment that we're in politically um, to make sure that we aren't afraid to speak up about issues that are of concern to us as women or people of color um, for fear that that will somehow taint us and not allow us to move forward. I think you have to be strategic in the way you do it. I think you have to be truthful in the way you do it and not exaggerate. But I do think it's we can't let people try to put the put a lid on these issues that are important for our own safe safety as well as having a work environment and a community where everyone feels like they can voice their opinion safely. Exactly. And when you say you have to be honest about it, it, it brings to mind the phrase, well, let me be devil's advocate. No, don't be devil's advocate. <laughs> it has to be authentic. It has to, has to be serious. And you, your, your dissension or your being a troublemaker, as I, I sometimes am, as I fight for you know, fairness and equality for women and other minorities, you have to be honest. You have to be authentic and you can share your vulnerabilities. But you can't just play or pretend uh, to be, you know, devil's advocate. I know that a lot of lawyers, especially litigators um, and debate teamers, you know, you, you want to learn the other side and know the other side. But when you're out to change the world like you and I are, you <laughs> authentically believe in what your message is or you're not credible. So, um, exactly. yeah. Definitely. Well, tell us what is something we don't know about you that maybe would be fun to know about you? A surprising. <laughs> so people are usually surprised to hear that I grew up in South Central L.A. I was one of two white kids in my graduating class at Dorsey High School. I wow. was student body president, however. Um, no shocker was, there. No surprise. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, an experience that really shaped my life and what I wanted to do with my life because at school I was in the minority right, right. I mean it was me and one other person who was white um, and what I learned was that in that environment I had a different experience from when I went out of my high school and into the larger community where I was in the majority and right. I could see that there were benefits that flowed from being in the majority that did not flow to being in the minority. I had a wonderful high school experience. I don't regret a minute of it, but it really taught me what it means to be a minority and the kinds of pressures and the kinds of issues that come up and the exclusions that you experience. But what taught me more was to know that when I walked out of my high school, I no longer had that. Whereas my classmates, when they walked into the larger environment, they had those same kind of, kinds of pressures in every aspect of their life. They could never escape it. And that really influenced my desire to make sure that I made a change for women and people of color who were not going to have the same opportunities as other people simply because of their gender or their race or their ethnic background or their sexual orientation. And it inspired me to go into the career that I did and to make the kinds of changes that I that I think I've made and to try to have big impact on society because I think it matters what each of us do, does. 
So that, that, that's my little secret that not many people know. <laughs> I did not know that. And it explains a lot now. Um, I will say you are very courageous. Okay. So courageous is a word that comes to mind. Um, persevering is another word that comes to mind. Uh, a force is a phrase that comes to mind. So when I talk about how, uh, you know, people, men and women, and those who don't identify with either gender, we communicate differently. And I think that lends itself to gender bias. And I think that then mm -hmm. gender bias can be directly connected to um, the failure to accomplish inclusive diversity, not just exactly you know, these DNI programs that, you know, your website looks great, your brochures full of colorful people, and you parade people around of all ages at the pitch. But mm -hmm. who's getting the big assignment? Who's getting paid? Who's getting the big case? Who's actually the relationship attorney or what have you? So what I do in the way of providing strategies and solutions is much like your example of your surprising fact. So when people don't hire someone, let's say someone might say, oh, she just doesn't fit in here. I challenge authority there and I, I am a troublemaker and like you I can see you <laughs> you would say well what does fit in mean why do you say she doesn't fit in she checks all the boxes on the job requirements or her resume looks great or education is perfect fit for this what do you mean she doesn't fit in um, so that's when people get their backs up and they get you know they're like oh you know she's so petulant or you know no I can't <laughs> explain to you what does that mean and that is the kind of provocative questioning of, you know, asking why or what does success look like to you or fitting in look at, like to you. That's what I see you, um, your career has been that, you know, you have been the one who's not afraid to say why, um, not just how. Everybody says how. Um, you want me to do something? How do I do it? I'll go do it. But first, before mm -hmm. we do that, we need to ask why should I be doing this? why yeah why do you think yeah. she doesn't fit in here and then people get very uncomfortable with that and i'm trying to get people to be more comfortable with asking why so your experience That's great yeah well <laughs> i make some frenemies along the way yeah i bet <laughs> so your experience in growing up as the minority um is one of the solutions that i i suggest and to be curious about the other. Um, so another theory that I talk about is terror management theory. And if you've ever read Ernest Becker's Denial of Death, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, terror management is fear of the other. So we have a lot of that in our country today, whether it's gender yep. or you know nationality, race, religion, sexual orientation, there's a lot of fear of the other. And you have embraced the other instead of been fearful of the other. And I think that's living by beautiful example of how we need to be. Um, I did not know that about you, actually. I thought you were um, Northern California girl through and through, and it's good to hear that you <laughs> had that experience um, because you can um, empathize with other people and relate and in, embrace differences. And I love that about you. So, so you I know, when you walk in someone else's shoes for a while, you you can yeah. really understand. And if you can't do it, literally, if you can't do it actually then you can do it figuratively by imagining what it feels like for a person of color to walk into a room of all white people or even for a man to walk into a meeting of all women 
you know, we've had the experience of walking into a room of all men. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but what does it feel like to put yourself in the other person's shoes? And that, to me, is the way we have to be thinking if we're going to move forward. Because it's not, I mean, I think women have to take responsibility for some of the right. practices that exist. And I think men have to take responsibility. And the only way we're going to get to solution is if we each consider the other's viewpoints and try to sort out what we can fix, what we can't, always focused on moving the ball forward. So, you know, at Stanford University, they have something called the Virtual Interaction Lab, where you can put on these virtual reality goggles and you experience a day in the life in the corporate setting of a black female or a black male. And, oh, wow. Yeah. And I was just thinking, you know, wow, Pat Gillette was that before that was that. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm always ahead of the times, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, being curious is one of the, um, the solutions, to be curious about the other. But I think we have to also, uh, you know, the, the people who are in the so-called minority or, you know, the LGBT community and the women and people of color, and we have to be open to others asking questions. Make sure they know they're safe to ask questions, no matter, even if some of those questions may sound dumb to us, give them, you know, a, a safe space to, at least they're asking, they're being curious about our differences or our world or the way we communicate or our history. Um, you know, exactly. so if, for example, white men want to ask, uh, you know, African American females, you know, what was it like to grow up here or how, you know, don't be uncomfortable to ask that question and don't be uncomfortable being asked that question because that's where we will come to know more and uh, embrace differences, I believe. Exactly, exactly. I mean, one of the interesting phenomena that's happening is that as baby boomer men have their daughters entering the workplace and they yes. see not, not these women not being paid the same, not having the same commercial opportunities, et cetera. All of a sudden, you know, it's not personal until it's personal. And right. now it's personal. You're affecting my kid. And so we see the aha button go on in some of these white men who've been in positions of power and thought this was all a bunch of BS or, right. you know, whining by women. And it's that kind of incremental change that will eventually, hopefully, uh, sooner rather than later, make the kinds of changes that we need to make so that we can truly have equality in the workplace. And I'm not letting the women off scot free. We have to ask for opportunities and we have to ask for leadership positions and we have to make sure that we're ready to move forward. Um, and we're not just waiting to have someone come to us and hand it to us. Um, but it's got to be a joint effort of the women taking responsibility and the men taking responsibility and finding common ground. I agree. I couldn't have closed with a better statement than that. So that is true. It is not men dominating women or women manipulating men. It, we both have to come to the table. All have to come to the table, not just both, but all. And exactly. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So on that note, I will, in the blog post that I'll share, where I sync this podcast into there with a link to it, I will share your contact information so people can reach out to you. Are you open to having people connect with you on LinkedIn? Absolutely. All right. Well, I'll share your LinkedIn link as well. Pat, all I right. have an amazing day. I can't wait to see you the next time I see you. Big hugs all around. And <laughs> 
Good luck with your day and have a great week. Thank you. And thanks, Susan, for doing this and for all that you're doing to help women advance. Really, we all really appreciate it. So many thanks to you. Many, many thanks to you as well. Bye-bye, everyone.